This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. The Innocents Abroad by Mark Twain. Chapter 42. Jacksonville in the Mountains of Lebanon. Breakfasting above a grand panorama. The Vanished City. The Peculiar Steed Jericho. The Pilgrim's Progress. Bible Scenes. Mount Hermon, Joshua's Battlefields, etc. The Tomb of Noah. A Most Unfortunate People. We are camped near Temnin el Foca, a name which the boys have simplified a good deal, for the sake of convenience in spelling. They call it Jacksonville. It sounds a little strangely here in the Valley of Lebanon, but it has the merit of being easier to remember than the Arabic name. Come like spirits, so depart. The night shall be filled with music, and the cares that infest the day shall fold their tents like Arabs, and as silently steal away. I slept very soundly last night, yet when the dragoman's bell rang at half-past five this morning, and the cry went abroad of, Ten minutes to dress for breakfast, I heard both. It surprised me, because I have not heard the breakfast gong in the ship for a month and whenever we have had occasion to fire a salute at daylight, I have only found it out in the course of conversation afterward. However, camping out, even though it be in a gorgeous tent, makes one fresh and lively in the morning, especially if the air you are breathing is the cool, fresh air of the mountains. I was dressed within the ten minutes, and came out. The saloon tent had been stripped of its sides, and had nothing left but its roof. So, when we sat down to table, we could look out over a noble panorama of mountain, sea, and hazy valley. And sitting thus, the sun rose slowly up and suffused the picture with a world of rich coloring. Hot mutton-chops, fried chicken, omelettes, fried potatoes, and coffee, all excellent. This was the bill of fare. It was sauced with a savage appetite purchased by hard riding the day before, and refreshing sleep in a pure atmosphere. As I called for a second cup of coffee, I glanced over my shoulder, and behold, our white village was gone. The splendid tents had vanished like magic. It was wonderful how quickly those Arabs had folded their tents, and it was wonderful also how quickly they had gathered the thousand odds and ends of the camp together, and disappeared with them. By half-past six we were under way, and all the Syrian world seemed to be under way also. The road was filled with mule-trains and long processions of camels. This reminds me that we have been trying for some time to think what a camel looks like, and now we have made it out. When he is down, on all his knees, flat on his breast to receive his load, he looks something like a goose swimming. And when he is upright, he looks like an ostrich with an extra set of legs. Camels are not beautiful, and their long underlip gives them an exceedingly gallous excuse this slang, no other word will describe it, expression. They have immense, flat, forked cushions of feet that make a track in the dust like a pie with a slice cut out of it. They are not particular about their diet. They would eat a tombstone if they could bite it. A thistle grows about here, which has needles on it that would pierce through leather, I think. If one touches you, you can find relief in nothing but profanity. The camels eat these. They show by their actions that they enjoy them. I suppose it would be a real treat to a camel to have a keg of nails for supper. While I am speaking of animals, I will mention that I have a horse now by the name of Jericho. He is a mare. I have seen remarkable horses before, but none so remarkable as this. 
I wanted a horse that could shy, and this one fills the bill. I had an idea that shying indicated a spirit. If I was correct, I have got the most spirited horse on earth. He shies at everything he comes across, with the utmost impartiality. He appears to have a mortal dread of telegraph poles, especially. And it is fortunate that these are on both sides of the road, because, as it is now, I never fall off twice in succession on the same side. If I fell on the same side always, it would get to be monotonous after a while. This creature has scared at everything he has seen to-day, except a haystack. He walked up to that with an intrepidity and a recklessness that were astonishing, and it would fill anyone with admiration to see how he preserves his self-possession in the presence of a barley-sack. This dare-devil bravery will be the death of this horse some day. He is not particularly fast, but I think he will get me through the Holy Land. He has only one fault. His tail has been chopped off, or else he has sat down on it too hard, some time or other, and he has to fight the flies with his heels. This is all very well, but when he tries to kick a fly off the top of his head with his hind foot, it is too much variety. He is going to get himself into trouble that way some day. He reaches around and bites my legs, too. I do not care particularly about that, only I do not like to see a horse too sociable. I think the owner of this prize had a wrong opinion about him. He had an idea that he was one of those fiery, untamed steeds, but he is not of that character. I know the Arab had this idea, because when he brought the horse out for inspection in Beirut, he kept jerking at the bridle and shouting in Arabic, "'Ho, will you? Do you want to run away, you ferocious beast, and break your neck?' when all the time the horse was not doing anything in the world, and only looked like he wanted to lean up against something and think. Whenever he is not shying at things, or reaching after a fly, he wants to do that yet. How it would surprise his owner to know this! We have been in a historical section of country all day. At noon we camped three hours and took luncheon at Mexe, near the junction of the Lebanon Mountains and the Jebel el Cuneise, and looked down into the immense level garden-like valley of Lebanon. Tonight we are camping near the same valley, and have a very wide sweep of it in view. We can see the long, whale-backed ridge of Mount Hermon projecting above the eastern hills. The dews of Hermon are falling upon us now, and the tents are almost soaked with them. Over the way from us, and higher up the valley, we can discern through the glasses the faint outlines of the wonderful ruins of Baalbek, the supposed Baal-god of Scripture. Joshua and another person were the two spies who were sent into this land of Canaan by the children of Israel to report upon its character. I mean, they were the spies who reported favorably. They took back with them some specimens of the grapes of this country, and in the children's picture-books they are always represented as bearing one monstrous bunch swung to a pole between them, a respectable load for a pack-train. The Sunday-school books exaggerated it a little. The grapes are most excellent to this day, but the bunches are not as large as those in the pictures. I was surprised and hurt when I saw them, because those colossal bunches of grapes were one of my most cherished juvenile traditions. Joshua reported favorably, and the children of Israel journeyed on, with Moses at the head of the general government, and Joshua in command of the army of six hundred thousand fighting men. Of women and children and civilians there was a countless swarm. Of all that mighty host, none but the two faithful spies ever lived to set their feet in the promised land. They and their descendants wandered forty years in the desert, 
and then Moses, the gifted warrior, poet, statesman, and philosopher, went up into Pisgah and met his mysterious fate. Where he was buried no man knows, for no man dug that sepulchre, and no man saw it e'er, for the sons of God upturned the sod and laid the dead man there. Then Joshua began his terrible raid, and from Jericho clear to this Baal-god he swept the land like the genius of destruction. He slaughtered the people, laid waste their soil, and razed their cities to the ground. He wasted thirty-one kings also. One may call it that, though really it can hardly be called wasting them, because there were always plenty of kings in those days, and to spare. At any rate he destroyed thirty-one kings, and divided up their realm among his Israelites. He divided up this valley stretched out here before us, and so it was once Jewish territory. The Jews have long since disappeared from it, however. Back yonder, an hour's journey from here, we pass through an Arab village of stone dry-goods boxes. They look like that, where Noah's tomb lies under lock and key. Noah built the ark. Over these old hills and valleys the ark that contained all that was left of a vanished world once floated. I make no apology for detailing the above information. It will be news to some of my readers, at any rate. Noah's tomb is built of stone, and is covered with a long stone building. Bukshish let us in. The building had to be long, because the grave of the honored old navigator is two hundred and ten feet long itself. It is only about four feet high, though. He must have cast a shadow like a lightning-rod. The proof that this is the genuine spot where Noah was buried can only be doubted by uncommonly incredulous people. The evidence is pretty straight. Shem, the son of Noah, was present at the burial, and showed the place to his descendants, who transmitted the knowledge to their descendants, and the lineal descendants of these introduced themselves to us to-day. It was pleasant to make the acquaintance of members of so respectable a family. It was a thing to be proud of. It was the next thing to being acquainted with Noah himself. Noah's memorable voyage will always possess a living interest for me henceforward. If ever an oppressed race existed, it is this one we see fettered around us under the inhuman tyranny of the Ottoman Empire. I wish Europe would let Russia annihilate Turkey a little, not much, but enough to make it difficult to find the place again without a divining-rod or a diving-bell. The Syrians are very poor, and yet they are ground down by a system of taxation that would drive any other nation frantic. Last year their taxes were heavy enough, in all conscience, but this year they have been increased by the addition of taxes that were forgiven them in times of famine in former years. On top of this the government has levied a tax of one-tenth of the whole proceeds of the land. This is only half the story. The paka of a pakalik does not trouble himself with appointing tax-collectors. He figures up what all these taxes ought to amount to in a certain district. Then he farms the collection out. He calls the rich men together, the highest bidder gets the speculation, pays the paka on the spot, and then sells out to smaller fry, who sell in turn to a piratical horde of still smaller fry. These latter compel the peasant to bring his little trifle of grain to the village at his own cost. It must be weighed, the various taxes set apart, and the remainder returned to the producer. But the collector delays this duty day after day while the producer's family are perishing for bread. At last the poor wretch, who cannot but understand the game, says, Take a quarter, take half, take two-thirds, if you will, and let me go. It is a most outrageous state of things. 
these people are naturally good-hearted and intelligent, and with education and liberty would be a happy and contented race. They often appealed to the stranger to know if the great world will not some day come to their relief and save them. The Sultan has been lavishing money like water in England and Paris, but his subjects are suffering for it now. This fashion of camping out bewilders me. We have boot-jacks and a bath-tub now, and yet all the mysteries the pack-mules carry are not revealed. What next? End of chapter 42